a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee. Today... I don't have Amy Donaldson, but I have the next best thing. I have uh, Edward K. Brass, otherwise known as Amy's husband, who is a defense attorney, and we're going to talk about some things that are pertinent to what Ed does. I'm also joined by former journalist and current adjunct instructor at the University of Utah, Sheena McFarland, and thank you for being with us today. Really glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so uh, I don't know if people... I'm doing a show because I had a lot of heartburn over the last couple of weeks because there were two court cases criminal court cases involving uh, people, uh, violence, and there was a large racial component to both of them. The first was uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, who was at the time uh, charged in connection with two deaths and, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, at least one other person who was seriously injured during a protest uh, in uh, August that happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin, because... Jacob Blake, who was killed uh, by an an armed black guy, killed by police in Kenosha. There was a Black Lives Matter protest there. Rittenhouse, then a minor, 17 years old, decided he wanted to go over and take part in this. But in his uh, estimation, it was to help keep the peace. That's a whole other story. And then uh, the other case that was really big was Ahmaud Arbery, who was a jogger uh, in Georgia, who was attacked and subsequently killed by three guys in his neighborhood who felt like he, I don't know, I don't know what they felt like. They felt like somehow he didn't belong there. Okay. Rittenhouse gets off, and surprisingly to me, the three gentlemen charged in the Arbery case were convicted. I want to start with the Rittenhouse case, Ed, because um, Amy, she talked me off the ledge a little bit because she explained to me why you can't call people victims during cases like this. And I, I couldn't be unbiased because I've watched too much of this in uh, over the last f- five decades of my life trying to figure out why uh, white people hate us so much. And I know that sounds crazy, but I'm not joking. It, it, it's This is crazy that this happens so frequently that we have these kinds of circumstances. So as a defense attorney, I was hoping you can kind of add some expertise to this. Did you watch? Were you able to watch at least part of that case? Some of it. You know, I saw a synopsis on uh, news broadcasts. So, what were your thoughts about just the way the case was run? I mean, thinking about the judge, and also, you know, uh, if you had a little insight on what what was uh, the defense thinking when they go into this case, knowing you know that it's emotionally charged, but that you know they obviously they had a pretty good case. It was clear that the defense was prepared and well-funded, both of those things. So that helps when you're able to have a, the How financial How well-funded? Uh, because part of the stories about them were that they were getting funding from outside sources. 
And uh, this was a team of people who came from out of the area. They weren't local attorneys. Okay. And so in that way, it, it gives the person, whoever the uh, defendant is, uh, a leg up because otherwise they might be you know, just outgunned by the prosecution who sure. has all the money in the world. Yeah. They have the state's money to draw on. In this case, the scales, as far as the spending goes, were equal. With regard to, I mean, it, uh, can you talk to me a little bit about, so when it first started, the judge starts, you know, making these edicts. And again, I have only covered cases, uh, as Sheena has as well, and I even covered a death penalty case, so I'm somewhat familiar with this, but I'm certainly no expert. I always thought that was weird, but you explained to me why uh, some of these uh, things are in place to protect people's rights as, as someone who is innocent until proven guilty or presumed innocent. Which part? What is it? Well, with regard to why you can't call uh, people victims because it may presume something that may not be true. Yeah. you can. A victim is a value-laden word. And so if, if you're calling someone a victim, it assumes that there has been a crime that occurred. And if the word victim becomes to come out of the judge's mouth, out of the person who's wearing the robes, then that tips the scale towards the state because jurors will assume consciously or subconsciously that if there's a victim, there must have been a crime that occurred. And so the state is already on its way to a conviction at that point. Uh, it's it's a subtle way of, of biasing a jury against the accused, and it tips the scale away from the presumption of innocence. So, Sheena, when you were watching this, what, what kind of were your thoughts as you kind of understood what was happening and, and looking at, you know, as an uh, objective observer, I would imagine? As much as anyone can be an objective observer, yeah. for sure. But I think what was always in the back of my mind was looking at self-defense laws in states and how it is incredibly difficult, it seems, to prosecute someone who claims self-defense in a moment, right, when they are uh, scared for their lives. When Kyle Rittenhouse took the stand and had this incredibly emotional reaction being up there and talking about how f- frightened for his life he was in those moments, um, it was very clear to me this was a 17-year-old who was armed to the teeth and was obviously did not have the emotional capacity or maturity maybe to handle a really charged situation. But I also thought in that moment, does state law really allow somebody to claim self-defense in that way and get away with killing somebody? Um, and that ended up playing out that way, but that was kind of what I was expecting. I'm a bit jaded like you are, where I didn't think this was right. going to go well. Um, but I would love, Ed, for you to maybe talk about what those kind of you know self-defense laws and what that kind of opens up and what that looks like. Sure. So in self-defense, and, and it's particularly pertinent to the case that you're talking about, there is a jury instruction that would be given at the end of the case as to the effect that you have a right to arm yourself and go where you're entitled to go and not thereby forfeit your right to self-defense. So in other words, if you arm yourself, you're someplace where everyone else can be, that fact alone does not make you the aggressor. You're still entitled to self-defense. So that that played a role in this case. Mm-hmm. That That's the law in, in Wisconsin, the same as it is the law in Utah. So there's that. And if the defendant in a criminal case introduces any evidence whatsoever of self-defense, then it's incumbent upon the state to disprove that defense beyond a reasonable doubt. The defendant never bears any burden of proof whatsoever. They just have to present some evidence of self-defense, and that's it. The state has to disprove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay, so what's interesting to me about this is, uh, in my mind, okay, again, I am biased. I'm totally admitting that. There are people who, and I think the police do this. I really do. 
They create conflict where there is none. Where otherwise there is peace, they walk up to somebody who had not engaged them, but engaged them. And then if things escalate, they get the right to, quote unquote, defend themselves, even though they created this situation in the first place. So Kyle Rittenhouse went to this demonstration as a white guy with a gun at an otherwise generally peaceful point where there weren't a lot of armed black people because that never happens. Because if it did, then the National Guard gets called in there because we, we don't get to do that. With uh, regard to this, he created that situation, I believe. And you're right. He, he can if, if somebody comes at him, then he can say, oh, I'm defending myself. Right. But if he weren't in in the situation in the first place and I get I hate that you're right. You know, I really do. Because he, he does have the right to protect himself. He has the right to go wherever he wants. Right. But that doesn't mean he's right. That doesn't mean I don't. If I go into the worst neighborhood in town with money hanging out of my pockets and they steal from me, then they are committing a crime. But I was a fool for going there in the first place. And I created that environment, not them. So I don't what I what I hate is that he got away with killing people when he should not have gone there in the first place because he was not helping. He was only there to create havoc, I think. And this, again, just Jason's opinion. Fair enough. But the problem is, is that if you're the prosecutor in that state, you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that what you just said is the situation. You have to prove that. You can't just think it. You can't just assume it. That has to be proven. And there were little bits and pieces of that case that clearly indicated that it was going to be a difficult case, even for very good prosecutors to prove. And the prosecutors that were involved in this case several times stepped on their own toes by going into areas that the judges forbade them from going into during the course of the trial. Which makes it more difficult for them to actually end up winning the case. Sure, because it's it's awful to get chewed out by a judge in front of a jury. It diminishes your credibility at the end of the case. When we come back, I want to uh, switch gears a little bit and go to the Amart Arbery case uh, because it's 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 a bit different. However, it does have some of the same elements, uh, but in this case, it just turned out with a different outcome. Uh, speaking today with Edward K. Brass, defense attorney here in Salt Lake, and Sheena McFarland, a former uh, journalist colleague and now uh, educator at the University of Utah, this is Voices of Reason. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. We are back with a lot of my projects, Voices of Reason, Jason Lee, today with Edward K. Brass and with uh, Sheena McFarland. We're talking today about uh, some criminal cases that have gone on. We just spent the first segment talking about uh, the Kyle Rittenhouse case and Ed trying to explain to us kind of what the circumstances were and why it turned out the way it did. And in my logical brain, I know what you say is true. It still hurts. But I, I get it. I mean, in all honesty, understanding the law enough that it makes it makes sense that it was able to turn out that way because I think a case could be made logically that despite the fact that you might feel something, 
that a person has a right to go where he wants to go and in so doing protect themselves if there's a threat. Well, well, think of it this way. The state called a witness in that case. It was the individual who was the third person you mentioned was wounded who said that he was armed, the fellow that was wounded, and he did not get shot by Rittenhouse. And I'm not defending Rittenhouse. I want to be clear about that. I'm talking about what the law is. Mm -hmm. Until he pointed his weapon at Rittenhouse, and then Rittenhouse shot him. That's as clear self-defense as you're ever going to get. But now the difference is that Rittenhouse had a long gun that you could see. The other guy may have had a concealed weapon. I don't know. I mean, but the the notion is that if you're the guy with a concealed weapon, you're saying to yourself, well, I got to get mine in my hand so that I can be equal with this fella. Whereas if he hadn't done that, he might. Not have gotten shot, actually. Once you point it at him. That's right. The threat is imminent. That's And he's got a – he has a total right to defend Every himself. right. So um, I want to jump to Ahmaud Arbery. Uh, again, uh, a black gentleman in his mid-20s jogging in his neighborhood. And he actually had on headphones. So he didn't even know that these people were going to accost him. You know, he, he like literally he was oblivious to it. But then when they come after him. He tries, you know, like anything, you try to defend yourself. And as it turns out, they end up killing him. And then uh, they weren't arrested right away, but they were eventually. And then they go to trial. The thing that was worrisome to me was I never feel, um, again, I don't have a great uh, sense of, uh, you know, criminal justice in in America when it comes to having uh, people of color involved, that they got 11 white people on this jury. And the judge in the case says, he knew what the defense was doing, but they made reasonable uh, legal arguments that he felt like he couldn't over uh, overturn, even though he knew what they were doing was skewing something, which in itself is unjust and I would imagine should be illegal. You shouldn't be able to stack it in a way that is knowingly uh, unfair to either side. Right? It is. It is. There's a case called Batson versus Kentucky that says that you can't use your peremptory challenges on a jury strictly for racial or gender reasons. You can't do that. So you have to articulate if the judge calls you out on it. And my recollection is that that judge who was from another district and was a very good judge from what I saw, that judge said, I want you to justify this. And originally, before uh, he ruled otherwise, he said that I think that this was done improperly. You did it for racial purposes. Then they articulated non-racial reasons for it, and he thought it was a close enough call that he let it go forward. See, now, but that, people who are racist don't wear uh, white uh, hats and, uh, what do you call it, uh, the swastika and all that other, the KKK garb. They come up with reasons that don't sound like racism to commit racism. Sure. And which, by the way, is what they did totally, and it, as it, it turned out, it didn't work. But I, I so what I don't get is part of what he said also was that he still felt like that's what they were doing, but he didn't feel like you know that, that he was justified in not giving into their what he otherwise he felt was a reasonable legal argument. But if if, if they're if they're using it to uh, do something you know is unseemly, there should I mean I don't know it just seems like there should have been something more you could do and but. Well, he could declare a mistrial and start it over again. That's one of the remedies. But he didn't think that that was appropriate under the circumstances. I mean, it sounds to me that he thought the same way that you're speaking about right now. But the issue was he didn't think that it would hold up on appeal. He didn't think that he had sufficient proof. And they could wind up 
you know, who knows what would happen then if they were convicted? Uh, who knows what would happen? See, like in my case, I'm thinking to myself, I, uh, but if you're because Amar, uh, Arbery is dead, so he doesn't get to appeal. Right. But it's do, is there any case in the world in America where I could have uh, 11 black people determining the, the fate of a white guy? I'm, I'm this is not a joke question. I'm asking either one of you. There's, Can you imagine that? There's a whole book written about that bonfire of the vanities. But it's fiction. Sure. I'm saying in real life, can you believe something like that would ever happen? It would depend on the demographics of the community you're talking about, frankly, and who you draw Why would on. it? Because in this case, the, the place where they had this case was majority black. No, no. I, I think it was— It was I, pretty close. I thought it was— no, in the city actually, where there was okay, yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, but not in, yeah, maybe not in. Uh, I thought the in the county area. that they drew from, it was seventy-five twenty-five. So I thought it was, I thought it was predominantly black. But again, I say it doesn't even, matter. Even if it wasn't, you, you can you imagine a, a case where that would happen? Because I can't. I, there's no way. There's no way. This is America. That that no. It there would be no. I I I don't have any sense of reality that makes me believe that would happen. So when when I saw it, I thought, oh, my God, this is happening in the 21st century, just like it did back in the 50s and the 60s when these guys, uh, you know, killed people willfully and wantonly, hung them from trees. They killed Emmett Till, uh, threw him in the uh, Tallahatchie River and hung a, a thing around his neck. It was just terrible after they beat the hell out of him. So then this was happening today. Lo and behold, they get convicted. And I still am shocked by that. I really am. However, but that, I just wish it never had to happen. You should rewind it a little bit because some of the details that that you might have left out are that the prosecutor, the original prosecutor, the local prosecutor, contacted one of the the defendants uh, who used to work as an investigator for their office and told them to go home and wash their hands. Mm. She's uh, now been charged with obstruction of justice by the special prosecutors who were appointed from a different district to come in and try the case. So there was active obstruction of justice in this case. And, and really, to me, as a human being, one of the most amazing aspects of that case is that the guy who filmed it thought that that video exonerated them. Thought that it absolutely established a, a defense of self-defense. When it, when you see the video, it's an absolute clear murder. You have right. an unarmed person who's not being aggressive at all, who has a gun pointed at him for no reason, who maybe his only mistake was putting his hand on that gun at some point in the video. But 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 which he has every right do? to do. Of course, right. of course. I'm talking about. Not a legal mistake. No, 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 no. I know what but you're saying, that, yeah. that's human nature. I mean, you'd want to do that. <laughs> But that might have resulted in his death. I don't know. What It's so weird to me that, you know, again, you know how there are people, two people can see the same thing and then see very, have, you know, very different opinions of what they saw. Sure. So here's this guy is, he's thinking he's helping these white dudes murder this other guy. And, but even in his own mind, he saw something different than what other people would see. How How have we gotten to a place where we just... We literally do not see what is happening in front of our faces. And and so much of it, in, in America at least, it has something to do with who we see. 
And that is to say, if you see a person of color or if you see if if I'm a person of color and I see a white person, I'm afraid of them. I know if I see a person with a badge, I am. So that didn't just happen to me. That's that's what's developed over the years that I've watched and lived. How have we gotten to that place? Uh, I'm going to well, I'll start with you, Sheena, because you haven't spoken today uh, in this segment. Yeah, I think um, it's something that's been part of the American story since the beginning. Right. We've always othered somebody who looks different from us. And especially with people of color, that's an immediate threat. Right. In the founding fathers days, in the days of slavery, the, the folks were humans were treated as animals or worse than animals. Right. And so we had this justification in our minds when we looked at a person who was obviously a human being, but treated them that badly. And that has just continued to, to evolve over time through all the generations. And I think when you see someone who is holding up that video as evidence that they were in the right, right, and they completely see that that was a justifiable moment, that they were defending themselves from an unarmed, non-aggressive person, it's because in their mind they see that person immediately as a threat. Much like you are afraid of a white person with a badge, there's immediately th- – I think it kind I'm of triggers that. i badge too, but that's another story. Fair. Yeah. But it, it triggers that lizard brain, right? Right, right? That immediate kind of fight or flight Absolutely. moment. And I think that that's what's so horrific is that what I've seen in, you know, just even the last 10 years is our inability as a nation to speak across difference and find our common ground. We've lost that. And it's been really, really put in the limelight in the last couple of years, right? Especially since uh, the murder of George Floyd. We are seeing that there is this complete divide because we can't see the humanity in each other. We just see a threat. Ed? Well, uh, what can I say? I mean, it's disturbing to me that today, you know, December 3rd, 2021, I can pick up the paper and read about uh, a fundraiser for a school uh, where they put you in jail for a period of time and you pay your way out and that fund, the funds go to some charitable purpose. And the teacher and the, the young person who uh, came up with the illustration for this project used a brown child as the example behind bars. Uh, and I'm going to guess, you know, having <laughs> lived here for a long time, that there probably weren't any brown children in that class, you know, given the area in which this was taking place. So, so – there's a lot that needs to be rooted out for things to be changed in the way that you're talking about. When we come back, uh, we'll dive a little deeper into this. This went, we went a little long here, but I just felt like it uh, needed to be talked about. Uh, you're listening to Voices of Reason. We are back. Jason Lee, Voices of Reason, speaking today with Edward K. Brass, who is a defense attorney here in uh, Salt Lake City. And uh, how long have you practiced law? 45 years. How old are you, Ed? <laughs> 69. Are you really? Yeah. Oh, okay, well, I would not have guessed that. I um, 45 years. Damn, that's a long time. It's a so life. you've seen a lot of stuff. I've seen a lot of stuff. Yes. I've seen things change. Sheena McFarland, uh, how old are you? I am 39. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I, that makes me 56, so I'm still somewhere in the middle of this. Uh, she is an educator and former journalist like myself. You know, off air we were talking about, um, and we kind of mentioned this at the uh, end of the last segment, why, how we've gotten here to a point where we don't see people's humanity in a way that makes us see ourselves in other people. And one of the things I, I feel like we, 
so much is just our sense of not getting out outside of ourselves. For instance, I would uh, contend that in America, as a white person, you can go your entire life without having a meaningful relationship with somebody who's not also a white person. Without having to try. I'm not saying that this that you're doing this for some racist reason. I'm just saying that this is just how our society is set up. That you can, uh, and, and it doesn't have to be in Utah. You can live in Chicago, L.A., New York. There is this self-segregation that happens. And I would say the same thing. I mean, if you're a person of color, you could do the same thing. You, you stay in your ethnic community or your racial community. That prohibits your ability to understand other people's life experiences because you don't get to identify with who they are and how they've come across these experiences because everybody's like you. It's, it's like being in an echo chamber if you're a certain party, of a political party, right? We have to do, we, society has to do a better job of stepping outside of what's comfortable to us because if you don't, then you have these situations where you are always demonizing people not like you, who don't think like you, who don't look like you, and that doesn't help any of us. We all become cynical then, but it takes effort, which a lot of people are lazy. We just, we all, you know, heck, we don't even go to the grocery store anymore. We we, we call Uber Eats or Instacart or whatever, you know, and Amazon has turned us all into, uh, for, we don't even know where brick and mortar stores are anymore, right? We have to do the work of seeing, finding out more about other people. We have to be uh, intellectually curious and and. I think then it, it improves our emotional quotient, too, because then we we see something in other people that is like us and we don't feel like, you know, if it happens to them, it's them. It, they don't feel like it could happen to me. Your thoughts? Which is exactly the reason why we need school integration and have always needed school integration so that people would be forced to interact with each other and learn about the differences between people, between cultures. That's why we need that. And so that even that is becoming weaker with the proliferation of charter schools, mm-hmm. private schools, that maybe people from inner cities or less uh, economic fortunate circumstances can afford to attend. So uh, that's the only way that I've seen in the time that I've been on Earth that ever gives you an opportunity to learn about other people. Because you're right. After you you graduate from high school or college or however much education that you have and you're on your own, unless you encounter people in, in the workforce and the nature of your job, mm-hmm. you're not going to have contact with people that are different with you. You're going to live in a neighborhood where people are like you uh, for the most part. I mean, I live on the west side, so that's not true where I live. <laughs> uh, but that's generally true. That is what happens. People get isolated. Right. And then, then they fall back on preconceptions about people, stereotypes about people, and engage in the kind of behaviors that we're talking about today. I mean, here's a guy jogging through the neighborhood, and the police call is, hey, there's a black guy jogging through the neighborhood. I mean, what is that? That's not a crime. That's nothing. But it is a but crime because you shouldn't be here. Yeah. Well, to them, right. I mean, that you know, that's then they came up with this excuse much later that there was some sort of citizen's arrest. Well, what's that for, for being black and running? That's ridiculous. Because so, you, didn't, you didn't capitulate to my telling you, what are you, uh, you know, asking you all when, these questions. Who gives you the right to do that in the first place? There's no legal authority for that. In any event, I completely agree with you that, that unless people mingle in some fashion, they're never going to do anything but rely on their stereotypes. And Ed, I would take that a step further. I 100% agree that bringing schools together and making sure that there is a good diversity of students is super important. But I think as an educator, I run a... Uh, 
exercise every year and every semester in my classes, which is a bead privilege exercise where you have seven different areas of privilege that you may or may not be privy to. And you have to take a bead for every time that you can answer yes to one of these questions. Like, I'm not worried about being followed by a security guard when I walk into a store, right? I can take a bead. People of color usually can't take that bead, right? <laughs> and there's a bunch for gender, for disability, for um, sexu- sexuality, those kinds of things. And I make students go through this activity with me, and then I ask them to do a reflection. And I'm always so impressed and so amazed because it's the first time students have stepped outside of their own experience. They had no idea that their colleague in the class who is in the LGBTQ community was ever questioned about whether they really were gay or not, right? Are there, is there ever the, and these moments that I'm just like, this is just basic humanity, people. And they've never had this moment where they had to step outside of, wow, I've never had to worry about where my next meal came from. I've never been in a situation where I couldn't afford anything that I wanted, right? And these are college kids who I understand are not super wealthy, but probably have come from a, a place of fair amount of privilege because mm-hmm. they are in college. Um, and it's so interesting to see that. And I get feedback from um, students from minoritized backgrounds in my class saying, thank you for doing this, because now I, the burden's not on me to have to explain this. But people had to actually stop and go, oh, you've had a very different path to get here. We may all be in the same room, but we had to go through different barriers and overcome different obstacles to get here. I know for me, I, I and I joke with Amy about it, I'm tired of being everybody's only black friend. So I'm, I'm advocating myself of that, that duty because I can tell you can. It's pretty obvious. A lot of times you can tell when people don't have a lot of experience with people of color because Sometimes it's microaggressions. Sometimes it's just this um, the the way they ask you things or what they ask you about just seems so dimwitted <laughs> to you. But in, in a way, it's it's this naivete that they haven't been anywhere and they don't even recognize it. Like they don't see it in themselves. Jason. And so you just have to kind of you deal with it. But as I get older, I'm less and less inclined to want to be bothered with it. You know, you know, I was in Brigham City at a restaurant and the waitress asked to touch my hair because she thought it would be different from her own. I am from India. We have fabulous hair in India. First of all, they use your hair for the wigs. They do, That's in right. fact. Um, but it was just amazing to me where I was just I was like stunned into silence because I just didn't even know how to respond in that moment of you know, my hair, we're the same. Like, it's, that's weird. I wouldn't well, ask I you got to touch that your question hair. many times, sure. and there is a book out called No, You Cannot Touch My Hair. <laughs> so believe me, it's, it's, it's a touching the hair thing. That's, that's a real thing. I don't yeah. know what to do about that. When we come back, we'll uh, kind of wrap some things up. But uh, I want to say thank you both because I needed to have this conversation really badly because I, I, it's, we watch these kinds of things happen, and I, I, I'm losing the ability to believe that we're we're making progress because every time it seems like we are we see these kinds of incidents happen and it, it they're not even happening in a vacuum they're happening all over the country and and somehow we're still having the same conversation that we had uh decades ago you have to have a little faith brother you have to think about the verdict in that case it yeah. was brought back by a white jury who did the right thing and prosecuted by an extremely capable white female prosecutor who did a hell of a job and I, I, I got to find her because I, I need to shake her hand and and them, yep. because I'm grateful that justice was served. She has an email. She's in the Cobb County Attorney's Office in oh. Georgia. See, now you th- this is going to be a phone call. I got to be making uh, Cobb County. I'm coming for you. Uh, I'm Jason Lee. This is Voices of Reason.
Jason Lee, Voices of Reason, back today with Ed Brass and with uh, Sheena McFarland. And uh, in our last segment, I, we just kind of talked about it a little bit. Um, we saw cases where, in all honesty, as much as I hate to say this, the justice system worked in both of those cases we talk about. Right. The in in all fairness, it it even if I didn't like the outcome of one, it it was it was fair. So how do we get to a point where I don't feel as though that I'm not so cynical? Because I did have a, a belief that both of them were going to turn out, quote unquote, wrongly. Because there's all these things, all these factors, you know, between uh, systems being set up to protect people in a certain way, if they look a certain way or if they're uh, if they know the right people. Uh, and, and then these other systems that are set up to discriminate against those who may look a certain way or be of a certain strata or live in a certain neighborhood. And and the, and the system doesn't work particularly fairly for them in general. How do we get to a point where we can, you know, uh, kind of even the scales so that Lady Justice is 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 blind and and does give people a fair shot no matter who they are. Education, education is the only way that that's going to happen. I can tell you uh, that that's not unfortunately since you made us put our ages on the record here, that won't happen in your lifetime or mine. But it is taking place among younger people. There are now programs designed to enlighten the court system about the disparities, racial, cultural, ethnic disparities in the criminal justice system, uh, particularly uh, enlightening judges as to how there's a disproportionate non-white population in corrections facilities and that there must be some uh, inherent bias in the system for that to happen. And I can tell you from my own experience that I've seen situations where three people of different ethnic backgrounds, uh, different racial backgrounds, have received three different sentences for the exact same crime in the exact same circumstance. So, And that took place some years ago. But I do think that there is an effort now to weed it out through an education process to sensitize people to the fact that they do have, whether they think of themselves as racist or not, they may have biases that need to be weeded out and confronted as part of the process. I think right now the system is more sensitive to that than it ever has been. Do we have a long way to go? Sure we do. Sure. Sheena? Yeah, I think um, I'm an educator up at, at, on a campus, right? And so I, I talk with young people. I talk with people who are 18 and 19 years old, and the world is bright before them. And I tell them stories, and they go, I can't believe that happened. And then I talk to women, and I think they're 100% believe that they are just as equal as the men around them, which they are. But I think when they get to their first jobs, are they going to get paid the same, right? And they are like, yeah, because I'm worth the much. Right? But they won't it's even just, know. It's a mentality shift, right. right? But it's this it's this idea that, hey, we're going to be better because I have been seeing this education starting to happen. Uh, the university has an Innovation for Justice program that's a, a partnership with University of Arizona and the law school. And they look at – and the business school is involved in there too. But they're looking at these inequities within the justice system and trying to find ways to solve systemic racism within the justice system. And it's being powered by young people, right? And it's really cool to see – those kinds of things happening. And you are hearing this more and more. It's like when the invention of the drug court happened, right, where Mm -hmm. instead of going to prison because you're on drugs, you get to go to rehab and you get to have support services for that. Seeing those things happen, change, though, is very, very slow. As I talk to people who are advocating for social justice, they always remind me that 
when I get impatient, they go, this isn't a sprint. This is a long marathon. And I don't know if these changes will be seen in my lifetime, but I certainly hope they'll be seen in the lifetime of my students. See, like, I mean, had you been in courts a long time, I, I'm glad you're hopeful. And I, but I appreciate that you're honest in the fact that you're writing it, 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 this is not going to happen quickly and it, it'll be a long time. But I'm, I guess I'm trying to understand how, how hasn't it happened even faster? But I guess you, you mentioned that it's just because of our human frailties that we bring our biases to these systems and we, we can't undo that since it's uh, created by humans in the first place? Sure. Imagine how hard it is to weed out people with biases when you're selecting a jury. You know, to get people to be honest about how they really feel about things in front of other people is a very difficult task. It's hard to recognize people who may have a racial animus towards the particular individual that you're representing. So the way that that's dealt with, and I don't know how effective it is, but the question is often posed, do you, potential jurors, have any reason best known to you that you would not want to be the defendant and have a person like you sitting in judgment of you? And sometimes they can answer that question honestly because it doesn't disclose anything. But it just, I mean, I always feel like the reason I know that you might not always be honest is because you still have your bias and you want to be able to mete out justice in what you consider to be a case that you uh, you already know the answer to. Those Those people, generally speaking, I can assure you are rogues. There are not that many of them. And they're often not that difficult to spot. So I'm not telling you it's a perfect system by any means, but I can tell you that jurors, and you mentioned Arbery case, jurors do their very best to follow the judge's instruction and do the best possible job that they can and leave that sort of baggage at the door. Does it happen in every case? No, it doesn't. Obviously it doesn't or we wouldn't be having this discussion, but it happens more than you might think. Okay. Well, I'm going to let that be the last word because I need hope (laughs) and uh, I'm going to keep that alive. Ed, Uh, Sheena, thank you both for being with me. Uh, Join us again for the next episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. If you have any comments about the show, please contact us via email at voramyd at gmail.com or at vorjasonl at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at adonsports and at jasonlee1. Our show's Twitter handle is at vorpodcast. Check out our Facebook page, and you can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or any of the places where you find interesting content. Be sure to review our show as well. We'd love to get your feedback, and it helps us grow our audience. Until next time, I'm Jason Lee. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of the Loudmouth Project. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.